Okay, friends, invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17, as we are um, coming to near the end of our series in John's Gospel that we began in January, and we, um, Lord willing, will finish this year. And if I could kind of, again, remind us of the setting of where we are in John's Gospel, all throughout John's Gospel, we have seen Jesus giving sign after sign to who he is, to his identity as the Christ, as the Messiah. And um, we saw this work out in many ways in his ministry through various signs. He's also revealed himself to us as uh, I am in several I am statements. Uh, we've seen all of those. And now we've come to the, um, so the first 12 chapters of John are actually covering many years of Jesus' ministry. John chapter 13 to the end is actually covering only a matter of days in a couple of weeks. And so we have seen a lot of material in the last several weeks with Jesus in his final farewell teaching to his disciples privately in the upper room, beginning in John chapter 13. He washes his disciples' feet. Uh, he um, teaches them, gives them the new commandment, speaks of uh, the betrayal of, that is coming from um, um, Judas Iscariot. He foretells Peter's denial, and he spent a great deal of time talking about he, how he needs to depart, and he needs to go because if he doesn't, the Holy Spirit, the, kel the helper, the advocate, the parakletos was the Greek word we saw, uh, will not come to help. So he needs to go so that the Holy Spirit could come. And he talks about being the vine and the branches, and then he talks about how through his resurrection, without using that term we saw last week, his resurrection, that their sorrow will, re will turn into joy. And then he ends chapter 16 with these, world, with this, with these words. Um, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What we're going to look at beginning today in the next couple of weeks is the rest of John chapter 17. John chapter 18 is when the arrest happens and sets into motion the final week of Jesus' life that will take him to the cross to suffer and to die and to be buried and to rise again. That all begins in John chapter 18. But in John 17, we have this bridge between Jesus' instruction privately to his apostles in the upper room and then his arrest, his seizure, and his being taken to, onto trial and put onto a cross. We have in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer. You can see if you have the ESV, that's the heading that's over John chapter 17. All of John chapter 17 is Jesus' prayer. Now, we have lots of Jesus' prayers in the Bible. Some are very short, just little short recordings. This is the longest prayer of Jesus that we have in the Scriptures. Often when we think of the Lord's Prayer, we think of Matthew chapter 6, right? Our Father who art in heaven. Um, and some have pointed out that that rightly should be called the, the disciples' prayer because the disciples were coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, teach us to pray like that. And so he says, okay, you should, this, is how, this is a sample of how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven. It would not be inappropriate, to, and it's fine to call that the Lord's Prayer. I call that the Lord's Prayer all the time. But I think it's very helpful if you were to say, what is the Lord's Prayer? The longest prayer. The greatest high priestly prayer of Jesus himself that we have recorded in the Bible. It's all of John chapter 17. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at his high priestly prayer. And if I could give you uh, a, an overview of where we're going to go in the next couple of weeks, because there is a lot here. Verses 1 through 5 of this prayer, Jesus is praying for himself. That's what we're going to look at today. 
Next week, we will look at Jesus' prayers for his people. This begins uh, really in verse 6, although we're going to read verse 6 today. And then in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we're going to look at his prayer for all of the believers in the world. And that'll be verses 20 through 26. Today, it's, today's going to be an unusual uh, kind of uh, uh, teaching today. For those of you who've been here for a while, it's been a while since we've seen the dry erase board, right? Um, so this is going to feel a little less sermon-like and more study-like. We're going to get into this passage of Scripture, and we're going to be looking through lots of uh, Scripture passages. So if you can, follow along. Um, if you have questions afterward, we'd love to, to talk with you about it. But we're going to dive in, and we're going to look at something uh, that's very important here in the opening words of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And um, so, little disclaimer, we got the dry erase board out. It's not going to be quite the typical sermon that you would normally uh, hear. It's going to be more of a teaching and a study, number one. Um, and number two, there's two parts to this. One, we're going to stay focused on Jesus' words here, and then we're going to go to the entire structural background behind what Jesus is saying. So we're going to go all over Scripture here. Uh, so with that said, um, let's ask the Lord's help for us to mentally be alert, to pay attention, uh, but not just with our minds, but also with our hearts to find out what it is that Jesus is actually praying here. What is, what's, what are, what is between the lines and that we may see it and hear it and know it and receive it and put it into our hearts. So let me pray for God's help, and then I'll read the first six verses of John 17. Our gracious God, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. You have spoken long ago in many ways to our fathers, that you've spoken through the prophets. But we thank you supremely that you have spoken ultimately and finally in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we are grateful not only for what we have been able to read and learn about his life and his teaching, we, we are thankful for his prayer for us. And so God, as we have recorded in your word the very prayers of Jesus himself, May we learn and take to heart what is here. May it stretch our minds and stretch our, stretch our souls and that ultimately we would be drawn to worship and ad adoration to you for your love for us. And so we ask you would speak to us now Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are willing to receive your word. And this we pray in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
Indeed, this is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. What an amazing prayer, and what an amazing start to the prayer. Let me give you a couple of observations from this uh, passage, and let me and let me jump ahead a little bit and give you a framework here. Let me talk about a covenant. You want to take notes. Covenant. Covenant is a very important, a very important concept in the Bible, all through the Bible. A covenant is. Um, Sometimes it's compared to like a contract or a contractual agreement between two parties. Um, that's uh, sometimes how it might be used. Often when it comes to God and uh, humanity, it's usually a one-way kind of, one-way kind of deal. Like God makes the, the stipulations on what should happen in a covenant, and then you either agree to it or you don't. Um, so let me give you the four aspects of, of what's involved in, in a covenant. One, and it's, it, this will be the, the closest to sermon like this will feel. These will all begin with P. Okay, so parties. Okay, you have to begin with the parties of the covenant. Who is involved in this covenant? Number two, you have promises. What's the point of making a covenant? Unless one of the party members is making a promise to the other or both are making a promise to each other. So there's some main kind of point to why you're having this covenantal agreement. And then three, what usually comes along with those prom, uh, promises is precepts or provisions, we could say. Like, here's, here's, um, here's what must be done for the promises to be, to be given. And then lastly, what, usually, what they usually have is uh, in addition to precepts, they have penalties. So if one of the, the parties of this covenant does not uh, abide by the terms of the covenant, then there would be penalties usually associated for breaking that covenant. Now let me give you a couple of examples. There's, there's many different covenants all throughout the Bible. Uh, let's go with... Um, probably the one that most people would be most familiar with, and this would be what was called the Mosaic Covenant. The, the covenant that God makes with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai after he has just brought them out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. And he says who the parties are. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt. You are um, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the people of Israel. Those are the parties of the covenant. And then there's promises given to your covenant. I will be your God, and you shall be my people, he says. And I will lead you into the land that I promised to give to your ancestors. So those are promises. And I will protect you and keep you. I will be your God. I will be your king. I will be your ruler. I've just delivered you from the bondage of another ruler, and now I'm going to be your loving and gracious ruler. Uh, but then there's precepts usually involved here. So... But there's some stipulations here. To be my people, there's some requirements. And if you do those, you'll get all the blessings of all the promises here. But if you don't, there will be penalties. For example, in the Mosaic Covenant, if you do not abide by me and love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, not obedient to me, you start to worship other gods, then ultimately there will be penalties. You will be kicked out of the land that I'm giving you. This is give me an example, right? You get this, you see this in many places in the Bible. There's a covenant with Abraham. Uh, there's a covenant with uh, Adam, I believe. I can make a case for that one as well. There's a covenant with David, where the Lord comes to David and says, of here's seed, I make you a promise. He's going to sit on the throne forever, etc. You get the idea. Those are some of the, the biblical covenants between God and man throughout the Bible. The one that we're going to look at today is I'm calling it the covenant. It's not me calling it. This is the name. Covenant of redemption. This one's a little bit different than other covenants, other biblical covenants. Because this covenant 
actually happened before the world was created. This is a covenant between God the Father and God the Son before creation. The covenant of redemption. And one of the passages, you can see this, this covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son all throughout Scripture. But one of the clearest examples of it is in the passage that we just read where Jesus reveals a little bit more about the nature of this covenant. So I want to make a couple of observations from this prayer, and then we're going to go to other passages of Scripture and see where this can be seen. Okay, now notice the Trinitarian foundation uh, in this covenant. It's, notice that Jesus, and we've seen this throughout John's gospel, but that Jesus, um, Jesus as the eternal Son of God has pre-existed all of creation. He is the second person of the Trinity, and the Trinity, God, the Godhead, existed prior before, uh, before he created anything. Jesus alludes to this, notice in verse 5. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We've seen this elsewhere in John's gospel, right? When he was, Jesus, for instance, Jesus is debating with the religious leaders and they're talking about Abraham and he goes, well, Abraham was very excited about my day. And they're like, you're not yet 40 years old. What do you mean that you, you've seen Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Remember that passage? And they got really upset because the invoking of I am, he was basically claiming I am the Lord. That's why they wanted to stone him. They took up stones to kill him because it was blasphemy. But right there, you have an example of Jesus' pre-existence, or we could say his pre-temporal existence. Pre-temporal existence, before time. He says, now I've come, the hour has come, I'm here, I've done the work that you've given me to do. Which now leads to the question here to the parties of this covenant. We have the parties of the covenant being the Father and the Son. Um, the Holy Spirit uh, is also involved in this covenant um, we you know he just did talked about the holy spirit in chapters 14 15 and 16 uh, but but in particular the nature of this covenant is between the father and the son notice that the father um, that this party this this uh, covenant is ratified this pact is made before the world existed and that it was planned. Notice how Jesus says, the hour has come. Many times throughout John's gospel, he says, my hour is not yet here. My time has not yet come. They, they attempted to seize Jesus, but his hour had not yet come. You remember this? And now it ends here in this prayer, the hour's here. What's been long planned, not only in my ministry throughout here, but planned from eternity past is now ready to reach its fulfillment. Now, in this covenant, the father sends the son on a mission. He gives him a work to accomplish. Okay, this is how this covenant. So there's, he sends him with a work to accomplish. So we could say here, let's say father uh, sends and the son works. He does this work to accomplish. And I should say, the father sends and the son accepts. The son, Jesus, willingly accepts the terms of this covenant. He's not forced into doing this. He, he's willingly accepting the father's offer here. The son, the father sends the son and the son willingly goes to accomplish his work. Notice verses 3 and 4. And this is eternal life that they know, know you the only true God, and we'll come back to that here in a moment, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay? So the Father sends the Son, and the Son willingly accepts. And I glorified on you, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So 
So this is the, the, some of the precepts here. The precepts is, okay, the father gives the son, he's going to send the son, and the son has some things that he needs to accomplish, some work that he needs to do. Upon completing this work, the father now rewards the son. He grants him his promises. And this is hinted at in verse 2. Okay, he says, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So what's suggested here, and also in verse 5, um, excuse me, verse 6, notice verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. So the, the promises are granted to Jesus is that he will have all authority over all flesh if he accomplishes the work that the Father sends him to do, and that he will give him a reward for his work he will reward him with a particular people that belong to the Father, but now are granted and given to the Son. And then he also gives him eternal life, which the Son can now give to the people that the Father has given him. So there's, there's many more there, but let me just at least point out those three. Are you seeing, are you seeing this kind of covenantal thing here happening? He's going he's to promise him that he's going to be all authority over all of the universe. He's going to give him a people and he's going to give him eternal life to give to that people. This is a part of this covenantal arrangement. Now let's look back in John's gospel, back in John chapter 6. You see Jesus allude to this gift of this people to him in several places. John chapter 6 verses 35 through 40. And this is the passage where Jesus has done the miracle of feeding in the 5,000. And the next day, the crowd is coming around him. They're just wanting more bread. And Jesus says this in verse 35. Jesus said to them, you know, verse 34, they say, sir, give us this bread always. In 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. They just wanted bread. They didn't believe in who he was. And then Jesus adds this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay? Got all of those elements there, right? The Father sending the Son. The Son saying, okay, your will. I'm going to accomplish your will. And that if I accomplish that, then this the Father will gift me a people. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The gift of eternal life given to his people. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see how those two go together. John 17 and John 6 go together. Jesus was hinting at this. Notice John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Excuse me. Yeah, 27 through 30. And this is in the context where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. And he eventually says here that, and that I and the Father are one. Which is another time where the Jews heard this and they go, we know what you're saying. We're going to pick up stones to kill you because that's blasphemy. You are claiming to be God. Notice what Jesus says, verse 25. Jesus answered them. This is in context of, if you are the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus says, I have told you over and over again, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Okay, he's doing the Father's works. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You seeing this together? We could go through and look at a couple more of these. But here you have Jesus being obedient to the Father. There's two parties in this covenant, the Father and the Son. If the, the Son will send the Father and he sends him to do a particular task, which we're going to explain a little bit more, the Son does that work, he accomplishes those works, and he will receive the promise. He will receive, I'll put it this way, all authority over all creation will say he's given the kingdom. He will give him the kingdom. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. He will be given citizens of that kingdom, right? We will give it to people, and those people will have eternal life. Both he and that people are granted eternal life. Are you seeing, are you seeing this here in these passages? So let me go, let's go outside of this passage a little bit and see where this is, uh, can be seen many other places in the Bible. This covenant of redemption. We have two parties, the Father and the Son. And let me add to this some Old Testament language behind here. We would say the, the Lord and then um, in the Old Testament, we're going to call this servant. And this is also what's the word for Messiah or Christ, right? This anointed, the anointed servant. And sometimes it's called, he's referred to as the son in the Old Testament. But if you read these passages, you'll start to see some of these passages in the Old Testament where like, oh, wow, there really is, even in the Old Testament, there's the Lord God the Godhead, and yet there's this other divine person that's being sent to accomplish this task and to accomplish this. And that there's prom promises given. And if you, you, uh, if you fulfill the, uh, the purpose for which I'm going to send you, you will have all authority. You will reign over all of creation. You will be the sovereign king over the universe. You will be king of kings and lord of lords. You will be gifted a kingdom. You will be gifted citizens of people. You will raise them to eternal life and grant them eternal life to live with you forever. And here's the precepts. So let me give you the precepts before we look at many of the other passages of Scripture. The Father's will is that the Son be uh, the head and representative over that people. So as we saw in our catechism questions, kind of like Adam was the head or representative of all of the human race, when Adam sinned and fell, everybody, that his guilt was imputed to all of humanity. If you're, you're in Adam, you sin. And you're, if you do sin, that's just evidence of the fact that you are in Adam. So it's our very nature has been changed because of Adam. All of humanity is affected because of Adam. Through one man's sin, sin spread to all men because all men sin, like Paul says in Romans 5, right? So Adam is acting as the representative head over a fallen and lost humanity. The father is sending the son to be that representative head over a redeemed humanity. And so what this representative does now gets credited to all of the people that he has been given. So the father's will is to give the son to be the representative head of that people. The son is to take on human flesh and human nature so as to redeem human nature, right? The son is to be obedient to the moral law of God completely and perfectly. To fulfill all of it. And ironically, it's to fulfill all where Adam had failed. And yet, the father says, and yet, even though you've done this perfectly and completely, fulfilled all of the moral law, you will suffer and die. 
unrighteously, meaning you are righteous, but it's unjust that you should die. But you do this so that you can now atone for the sins of all of that lost humanity. So this is the father's, those are the precepts that the father gives to the son. And those are what the son agrees to accept and to do. So let's, let me look through a couple of passages of scripture here. Um, it's actually three pages worth. We'll see. I'll have to sort through some of this here. Second Timothy 1.9. You can look at these references. Uh, listen to some of these references, and then I'll direct you to some of the other ones for us to turn to. If you would like to turn to one, turn to Ephesians 1 now, and then also to Isaiah 42. But just listen to a couple of these. Second Timothy 1.9, where the Apostle Paul says of this, about the purpose, about Jesus Christ, this agreement, this covenant happening before the creation of the world. Where the Apostle Paul says, who saved us, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul is echoing the words of Jesus in this prayer. Or Titus 1-2, where he speaks of the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. In terms of this covenantal agreement between these two parties, the Father and the Son, Romans 1 begins this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Wait, what? The gospel was promised in the Old Testament. Yes, it was. Concerning his son. Wait, the son was promised in the Old Testament. Yes, it was. Declared to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is saying there was a covenantal arrangement back in the Old Testament. We could see it. Or look at these words, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. In Paul's song of praise to this mighty work of God, he, and it's a Trinitarian prayer. He begins with the Father, and then he talks about the Son, and then he talks about the Holy Spirit. But here at the beginning, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. To be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, if you have ever read some of these passages and you go, what, what is going on here? Jesus' prayer is helping us to understand, yes, we had an agreement that I would redeem a people that you would give me and that I will be obedient to it. Turn to Isaiah 42. Where, where do you see Jesus in the Old Testament? Every page. Every page. Let me give you one that's a glaring example. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. This is Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus is born. And here, this is the words of God speaking to, through Isaiah to Israel. And then he says these in verse 1. Behold my servant. Okay, pause right there. You go Now let's stop and just break this down in really simple form here. There's somebody talking. That's God. Who's he talking about? My servant. Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Okay, so this is where the Holy Spirit then comes into this covenantal arrangement. The father sends, the son agrees to go, and then the father also says, and guess what? I... We'll have the third person of the Trinity to empower you in your ministry throughout this, this whole thing. It's right there. You got, there. you got the Trinity right there in an Old Testament passage 600 years before the New Testament. And I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to, to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Yeah, you ever read this and you go, wait a second, I've read this before. Yes, you have. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 12, that is applied to Jesus. 
They knew this, is, this passage is about Jesus. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus, his, uh, thus says God the Lord who created heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people in it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Who's the you? The servant of verse 1. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Here you have the father speaking to the servant and saying, I'm going to give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. Hello. (laughs) We saw this in John's gospel, right? I am the light of the world. Or what about, uh, was it, is it Simeon? When Jesus is born and they're bringing him into the temple and Simeon is like, ah, I have seen the salvation of the Lord. Lord, you can take me now because I've seen the salvation of the Lord. A light for the nations, he says. Ah, what Isaiah was talking about, this servant, and when he sees baby Jesus, he's like, he knows that's the one. Wow. What does Jesus come to do? Verse 42, 7. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This was Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4, right? Thus says the Lord, in the time of favor, I have answered you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Amazing, isn't it? So this prayer that Jesus gives about a covenant between the Father and the Son, that the Father sends and he gives them these promises, and that the Son willingly does and goes to fulfill, and that this covenant happened before the world, before Genesis 1-1, yes. Look at Isaiah chapter 50. Here is what another conversation, or here is, um, this is now the servant speaking in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God, notice all capitals there, has given me, okay, this is the servant, the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear And I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. Okay, this is speaking about this covenant. I'm going to send you to do this. And he goes, I'm going to do it. Remember how I had said that the Hebrew word for hear and to obey is the same Hebrew word? You know, Shema, hear, O Israel, it's to hear and to obey. So when he's saying here is like when, you know, you've opened my ear, you've caused me to be obedient to you, and I was. Verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now, you look here between the lines that you're saying, wait a second. You, you offered your back to be strick- you struck. Your, your beard was pulled out. You, you received disgrace and were spat upon. Wait, I thought you were the servant of the Lord and that you were going to be obedient to him. Is this the result of being obedient to him? Yes, that's what Isaiah is saying. And notice, all of those things happened to Jesus. But notice what he says. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. A moth will eat them up. Here he says, I'm going to be vindicated. 
the, the injustice that's going to happen to me, being spit upon, being struck in the back, having my beard pulled out, is will, I will be vindicated for that. That's page one. We have two more. Let me get going a little quicker here. Psalm 2. We sang Psalm 2 last week. And Psalm 110. We read that today and we sang it today. Oh, man, there's so much more I could do. Uh, Let's just do Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, verse 1, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and, there's, uh, there's two here, and against his anointed, saying, okay, now this is the words of the nations that rebel against God. Let us burst their bonds. Notice the plural. It's the bonds of the Lord and his anointed one. Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. But the psalmist says, but he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in their rebellion against him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, this is the Lord speaking about his king, his anointed one. I will tell of the decree. Now it's the king, this anointed one who's speaking in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, okay, now he's telling like this is... This is how it has happened that this king is now going to reign in Zion that was appointed by the Lord. This is now what he says. He goes, let me tell you how this happened. He says to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see the covenant? It's a genuine question. Are you seeing it? Are you seeing this here? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's not, hopefully it's not just me. So he goes, uh, so wait a second. This king that he's going to set on Zion's hill, that's the Lord's king. And he says to him, you are my son. Today I've begotten you, father and son, covenant. And he says, ask, and I will make the nations your heritage, the people. Now, does this make sense of Jesus' words? Since you have given him all authority over flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so the psalmist goes on to say, hey, given the light of this covenant, there's still an offer for grace here. Oh, kings of the earth, be wise. You better wise up because there is one true king of kings and lord of lords and you're in rebellion against him. So in verse 10, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish along the way. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Okay, remember, I I started to say this uh, before we sang this psalm, that David is like watching this. It's like he gets a vision of something happening and he sees the Lord, if he can be seen, the Lord And then he says to his Lord, different spelling, and he's witnessing this conversation that happens between the Lord and David's Lord. And if David is king, who's Lord over David? It has to be this anointed person. This is is why the the writers of the New Testament were like, this is what's going on here. So just capture what's happening here. David says, the Lord says to my Lord, and then this is what he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Oh, much more could be said about that. But you at least got the idea. See the covenant is happening here between the father and the son. And that this covenant involves the son with promises to be a king. But if he goes and suffers and turns his back so that it could be struck, his beard can be pulled out and he would suffer and die. One, one more. One more. Isaiah 52 and 53. 
Here the Lord is speaking through Isaiah. And then again, like it, we saw earlier in Isaiah, chapter 42 and 49 and 50, we have him saying, talking about his servant. Verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Remember Jesus' words, glorify your son with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. That glory was, was planned. He shall be high and lifted up. As, as many were astonished at you, again speaking of this servant, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which you have not been told, uh, for that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, now this is kind of Isaiah speaking of this, this servant. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He, this servant, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was, the servant, was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. Thank you, Jesus, indeed. Skip down to verse 10. No, no, let's don't skip. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Isaiah is telling us all about this covenantal arrangement between the Lord and his anointed one, and that he's going to give him a people, and that even in the midst of being crushed by the will of the Lord, he is going to see his offspring. He's going to see his people. He will prolong his days. How can somebody who's beaten to death prolong his days? The resurrection. This is all planned. This is all part of the plan, and it's coming to fulfillment here at the end of this prayer, the beginning of this prayer in John 17. Here's the covenant. The Father and the Son, the anointed Son who's going to be king and ruler on, from Zion. He's the servant. He's the Messiah and the Christ. 
And the precept is that the Father sends him and that this Son be the representative for a redeemed humanity, a redeemed people that the Father has chosen. He is going to grant them this, grant the Son this people if he will fulfill this task. He will take on human flesh, he will suffer, and he will die, and he will be vindicated in that work and risen from the grave. And the promises will be now he will be king over all. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That he will be given a people. And that he will grant them eternal life. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, you might be going, wait a second. You said something about penalties. What's the penalty? You know, you know so like in Moses, you know, if the people of Israel would worship another God and they would. So there would be penalties involved with breaking this covenant. Why did I not mention any penalties? Because the parties of this is God. Who can stay his hand? There are no penalties for a covenant that is impossible for God to not fulfill. This is the basis of your salvation. Your salvation, the covenant of grace, that all who would believe in Jesus Christ, that all who would come to him, is all founded on an, a transaction that happened in eternity past. What does that do to your soul? What does that do when you're struggling in your walk with Christ? Should that encourage? Wait a second. This gospel is bigger than I thought. This gospel is massive. It goes into the very being of God. The interworkings of the person of God before he even said, let there be light. You ever struggle with your salvation? How could you struggle? When you know that your salvation is grounded on this transaction between the Father and the Son, empowered by the Spirit in eternity past. Much more could be said, but let me just read. Let me just read a couple of great words. You know I like to read dead guys. This is a dead guy. And you've heard me say him before. Wilhelmus Abrakel. I love him. He's great. He says this about this covenant. <clears throat> it's covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. Um, he, he says, you know what? This really is not mere intellect, intellectual speculation. He says, this, we should be pondering this. We should be meditating on this covenant of redemption. Why? Because it's the foundation, he says, for all sure comfort, joy, and holy amazement and the magnification of God, he says. Let me, he gives you a couple of applications. First, he says, the salvation of the elect is unmovably sure. They are therefore in an unchangeable state indeed as confirmed in this as elect angels, he says. For both parties, God and the Lord and Christ, God the Lord and Christ are fully and mutually satisfied concerning the salvation of the elect and the way in which they will become partakers of it. They're like, this deal is good. They are in Christ's keeping, and thus they are kept by a sure and almighty and faithful hand. As Paul says in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, when you think about that verse, sometimes we've said that so often, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then you realize, well, let's put that the love of Christ in the context of this eternal covenant. Wow. Number two, he says, the elect neither need to accomplish nor merit salvation. You don't need to accomplish or merit salvation, nor add anything to the acquisition thereof. This is a gift. For by this covenant, all the weighty conditions were laid upon Christ. And he fulfilled them. And he now gives that gift to you through faith in him. He says, to all who would believe in me, in my name, I will give you eternal life. 
Number three. Let me read back up here and read this too. Speaking of Christ, he would bear the punishment. He would fulfill the law on their behalf. He would uh, keep them. He would lead them to salvation. He would perform that all that uh, pertain to the covenant and also and has also accomplished it. All the merits of Christ extend to God's children and all the graces are theirs. The adoption unto children, justification, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. All these at the appropriate time, manner, and measure are administered to them in accordance with the contents of the covenant. Number three, the covenant of grace our covenant transgression with a transaction with God has its origin and basis in this covenant of redemption. Let me say that, say that before. And he, he adds this. Therefore, the elect on the one hand need, need, but be still and to let the Lord work. They need to Open their mouths to receive for whatever is comprehended in the articles of this covenant will most certainly be given to them. He says that on the other hand, they must focus upon this covenant, be active in entering into the covenant of grace and living therein. They must make it the foundation of their life. This will motivate the godly to proceed with understanding and steadfastness. Now, what he's saying here is that all of our merit and acceptance before God comes through the work of Christ and we rest in Christ. But that truth then should, out of love for his love for us, cause us to walk in faith with him. And then lastly, fourthly, this covenant reveals a love which is unparalleled, exceeding all comprehension. How blessed and what a wonder it is to have been considered and known in this covenant to have been given by the father to the son by the son to have written and by the son to have been written in his book and to have been the object of eternal mutual delight of the father and the son to save you how motivating is that how enriching is that to your heart and your soul to know that your salvation, your trust in Jesus Christ is, is something which the Father and the Son rejoiced to accomplish on your behalf. Is that not amazing? Love moved the Father and love moved the Lord Jesus. It is a covenant of love between those whose love proceeds from within themselves without there being any lovableness in the object of his love. Oh, how blessed is he who is incorporated into this covenant and being enveloped and irradiated by this eternal love is stirred up to love in return, exclaiming, we love him because he first loved us. I could go on, but I don't know that I could. My heart is so overwhelmed right now out of love that the Father and the Son in their being before eternity chose to save through faith in His Son. Friends, we don't have the opportunity to to celebrate the meal that Jesus gives to mark our entrance into this by faith. Where the Lord Jesus on the night before he was arrested, actually the same night he prayed this prayer, he gave these disciples this meal for us to celebrate together. And this meal is for all who trust in Jesus Christ. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, you could do that right now and just say, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief.
For those who have made profession of faith in Jesus Christ, we come to this table with joy, knowing that this, that this meal we're entering into and partaking of, we're partaking of union with Christ and his work for us. And so, friends, if that is true for you, I invite you to come to the table. Let me pray. Come to the table. Take the elements back to your seat. And we'll take this meal together. Let's stand. Our gracious Heavenly Father, who in your wisdom that's beyond all of our comprehension, entered into this arrangement with your Son to redeem Adam's fallen race, of which we are all a part. And we thank you that it's through this covenant is what's represented in these, this prayer of Jesus' own words that out of your love you would give us a people to your son whom you love and that he would love that people enough to die for them, for us. And we thank you for this meal that he gave us that very night to remind us of the truth of that, that what nourishes us spiritually in our souls is the breaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine. His broken body and his shed blood for the new covenant in which we are saved. And we thank you and praise you for this mighty work and we partake of this with great joy. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.